Thank you very much, Samanata, for that very, very generous, short but very generous introduction. And uh, I suppose it might be worth saying that whether or not I'm worth listening to, you kind of have to listen to me. Um, <laughs> because I am somebody who seems to find it very easy to speak, which is very much a double-edged sword, those who find it easy to speak uh, re will realise. The other day I was down at my mum's and some friends from here and other places came for lunch. We were on our way to the Buddhafield Festival and um, of course, naturally, uh, my friends wanted to know what I was like when I was a little boy and uh, my mother told the story about going to the parent-teacher's evening at my primary school, so when I was about seven or something like that and when uh, they asked uh, my my uh, class teacher what I was like she said well he'll either be a priest or a politician <laughs> and my mother being my mother and father being quite sort of simple souls were really kind of surprised at this uh, response because uh, I don't think they had aspirations you know in that regard for either of those particular careers so they said, why? And he said, well, he's got the gift of the gab. Um, whether or not a dharmachari is a transcendence of the priest-politician dichotomy, I don't know. Um, she also came up with this story that I don't remember, that at, an, at my secondary school, that, uh, that I had the ability to sway an audience for good or evil. <laughs> I'm sure that was my mum's own sort of imagination embroidering a far more mundane story so anyway you have to listen to me because I can talk even when there's nobody listening uh, and I want to um, begin my talk by sort of sharing an experience I suppose a recent experience of um, happened a few weeks ago I, I went to the Buddhafield festival um, those of you who don't know this is that there's Quite a large group of order members, mitras and friends who for some years now have been conducting uh, events uh, uh, in the countryside, down mainly in the West Country, uh, though there have been developments in other parts of the country. Uh, there's a Buddhafield North and a Buddhafield East, but the original Buddhafield kind of more or less happened mostly down in the West Country. And uh, they do a lot of retreats under canvas, but they also have become part of the sort of festival scene, apparently, in this country. There's a thriving festival scene. And they even have their own festival called Buddhafield. And uh, I went along because I was asked to give a talk on the Dharma. Ended up giving a couple of talks on the Dharma. And it's under the auspices of our Sangha. But, you know, all sorts of things you know, go on there, you know, there's a dance tent, there's African drumming, there are cafes, the great big healing area, um, and there's meditation tent, puja tent, uh, great stuff for kids. If you're a Buddhist parent and you want to take your family for something, Buddhafield Festival, it's fantastic. And uh, it was my first Buddhafield, so, you know, I was quite, you know, unsure of myself and all the rest of it, and, you know, I was at the edge there. Um, but I have to say, I was incredibly impressed um, by particularly the general atmosphere. I didn't go to many of the events and things like that. Not all of them were my cup of tea. The main thing was just to enjoy an atmosphere of a weekend of real you know, friendliness and harmony. I mean, that was the, the, the real flavour 
you know, of the week, weekend. There was no, I didn't come across any, you know, any aggression, any unpleasantness of any kind. And there was about 2,000 people there doing all sorts of different things. And the atmosphere was just very, very good, very, very positive indeed. And even in some cases quite, I think, there's some real you know, spiritual quality to it. And I went with my friends, we camped together, people from Pamaloka and, and other places, and we, we drove back, feeling quite sort of high after, in, in a natural sense, uh, <laughs> after the, after the um, and grounded too, um, after the weekend. And uh, we called in at um, you know, one of these big service stations on the motorway, because you know, we wanted some refreshment. And on the... The, the stream of TV coming through, there was all the stuff about the conflict in the Middle East, the most recent conflict in the Middle East. Hezbollah um, blowing up Haifa with their weapons, kidnapping Israeli soldiers, border clashes, and the Israeli army and air force going in very heavily. And... What was most disturbing as all, of all was to see the accounts of civilians being killed uh, in this conflict. And after this weekend, it was like a physical blow. It was like a sort of violent physical blow to the chest. And of course, it, they're very weird, those service station places. They're kind of, kind of lands of alienation, you know, where, where people kind of pass through on the motorway. And you've got this tragedy being streamed to you like, like entertainment, you know, th through these television sets. And I, I felt like shouting. I felt like, um, I felt like starting a demonstration. I felt like saying no to what was going on. Not that I was taking any sides, not that I was supporting the Israelis or supporting Hezbollah. I was for people who were being killed and maimed and lives being destroyed and I was deeply distressed by it upset by it uh, angered by it and I've been reflecting on that I guess ever since and with this weekend uh, coming up Padmasambhava the magic of compassion you can't but start reflecting on the state of the world. I could stand here and give a talk to you about how wonderful it is to do the Metta Bhavna, how wonderful it is to lead a good, peaceful Buddhist life. But it would be wrong to give a talk like that without reference to what is actually happening in our world. It would be immoral, it would be again uh, to do that it would be wrong to evoke these fabulous beautiful images Tibetan images and stories without reference to what is happening you know rockets into Haifa bombs in southern Lebanon but of course it goes on it's not just there it's bombs on the London underground it's um you know, elections in the Congo after terrible civil war. It's war in Somalia and so on and so forth. If you listen to the, the news, the suffering 
which is presented almost as a sort of daily soap opera, which we observe from our very privileged position, just pours out day in and day out. But then it's not just there, it's not just those obvious conflicts, the obvious violence that goes on. There's, there's the suffering, the kind of everyday suffering that you hear about. You know, somebody, you know, killing somebody because of an argument, because of drunkenness, because of dangerous driving. You know, the, the, and then there's all the things you don't hear, you know, all the stories. What, what about, you know, bullying in play, playgrounds, you know, casual comments which cause harm, domestic violence. And of course it isn't even that, it's, you know, you walk along this pathway, I walked along this pathway the other day and there was a mole, crushed, dead, bleeding on the ground and so on and so forth. When you start talking about compassion, you have to start referring to the suffering of life, the suffering of existence, because that's what compassion is a response to. And of course, when you start to look at the suffering of the world, it's utterly overwhelming. It's utterly and completely overwhelming. If you, if you have any sensitivity, you could go under uh, just thinking about it and a, and a sense of helplessness and impotence arises in it and you know the general sort of shaking of the head as, as, as we consider that well it's worse than ever when we were down at Buddhafield I heard some talks on the environment and on ecology as well as, well, as, well as various other you know social and political uh, issues and you know if you listen long enough you start thinking we really are deep in it deep in shit you know up shit creek without a paddle i mean that's what it really does feel like uh, sometimes if you'll forgive the expressions but of course it was ever thus i think sometimes we can have this idea that the suffering that we encounter in this world now is sort of absolutely unique and it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's heavier than it's ever been before. Maybe it is. Maybe it is from a certain point of view. But it was ever thus. It was ever thus for every generation. When you read through the ancient literature concerned with Padmasambhava, and most of the material on Padmasambhava is known as treasure literature that emerged started to emerge in about the 11th century and a whole, what, what modern scholars called the cult of Padmasambhava, as they happily call it, kind of started to arise, where Padmasambhava is this sort of mythic hero, as this great saint, this great bodhisattva, this great guru, this second Buddha, this force of spiritual energy. When he starts to be invoked, evoked, described... What you find in the literature is descriptions of the world, is description, uh, descriptions of the Tibetan worldview, is descriptions and concerns about a deeply fractured country, the old days of the Tibetan Empire going back to the 8th and 9th centuries, you know, Trisong Detson and uh, the early transmission of Buddhism and this, this idea that Tibet was a strong, unified nation. That has gone and what you have are warring factions, what you have are warring clans, what you have are warring uh, 
um, regions, you have a deeply divided society and you find descriptions in these ancient treasure texts describing the world in which the Tibetans are operating in. Um, deep, deep concern for you know, the violence that, that, that's going on. And Padmasambhava appears, talks, speaks to his disciples, responding to that, telling them how they can deal with it, but really, more than anything else, contextualising that, saying, yes, this is the time of dregs, as they sometimes call it, the Kali Yuga, that's a, not really a very Buddhistic term, that's more of a Hindu term, the age of darkness. But he more or less says, look, it was ever thus. Suffering is woven into existence. It's woven into life. Even if we were to get things right, let's supposing we got things right, we had a wonderfully harmonious community and world, and that is something to strive for. I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for that. We need to strive for that. We need to live as if that is possible. Even if we were to do that, even if we were to, just this group of people here, if we could imagine that in this weekend we came together in a very deep and profound way, in very, very deep harmony with one another, if we could imagine that we could do that and make such substantial change that we left here and we were a powerful force for good in the world, there would still be suffering. There would still be suffering. There would still be, for example, the suffering of suffering, as the Buddha speaks of it. Dukkha, dukkha. That suffering is there, a fact of life. You live with this body, in this world. Suffering is unavoidable. The Buddha himself was unable to transcend that suffering. He might have been able to transcend other kinds of suffering, but physically, he still suffered at the end of his life in the Parinirvana Sutta. The Parinirvana Sutta, when you read of his last tour, you read of his incredible physical pain. He says he's like an old cart who's unable to go along without being sort of lashed together with rope. So he's kind of stumbling along, this sort of physical wreck. Uh, stumbling along and even putting up with severe physical pain out of love and compassion for his disciples. He wants to do one last tour. He wants to blaze with love even more strongly for his disciples. But physically he still suffers. We can't avoid that. That, is, that happens to us. No matter how beautiful our body, no matter how much work we do on it, no matter how much cosmetic surgery we might have, no matter how many kinds of vitamin pills and long-life blue algae we take, you're still going to suffer physically. That is unavoidable. And then there's the suffering of change, the suffering of impermanence, the suffering of transformation. So even if we were to come together and kind of entered a blissful realm. It would change. We would leave here. We'd go somewhere else. We'd have to let go of things. We'd have to move on, even if we were incredibly together. And we kind of headed up a sangha, or, or with some friends. We got a really good sangha together. Within our environment, change would happen. People would die. People would move. People would leave. 
There might be all sorts of conditions that support that sangha, you know, all sorts of conditions in society that make it possible to come together. Those conditions change, they move on. You can't sort of sustain that. You can sustain your spiritual inspiration if you develop insight into the true nature of things. That you can keep going. But the actual physical conditions you can't keep together. And we've seen through history, history shows, wonderful periods, incredible periods of brilliance, you know, human uh, brilliance. People coming together wonderfully and creating wonderful things. But things change, things move on, they don't last eternally. That, that, that's just not possible. It's not going to happen like that. I sometimes say this when, you know, to, you know really as a response to the complacence that, that I, I see sometimes in our own Sangha, um, in our own F, FWBO. Sometimes people have difficulties, we all have difficulties, and we can find ourselves complaining about our Sangha. Oh, you know, those order members, they're rubbish, you know, they're, so, they're not very good in their practice, you know, and... Um, you know, those mitras, they're not very good. And, you know, mm, I don't like this teaching and I don't like that teaching. And, you know, I don't like going to Padmaloka. You know, mm, you kind of, we get into those kinds of moods. But just hold up for a while. Just hold up for a while if you get into that mood. It's well worth reflecting on the incredible conditions we have for practice. You know, every day, I think, I tell myself, you are living in a very privileged environment. I live in this fantastic community, this beautiful place here at Padmaloka, with this fantastic shrine room. I live with very, very good friends and people. I have great people visiting me on a regular basis, like yourself. It's like we have these, you know, we have these weekends where, you know, this huge community comes for a, for a bit of a knees-up, a spiritual knees-up, which is always enjoyable. But it's always worth reflecting. We don't know how long this will go on for. We don't know. We don't know how long we're going to live in a society which makes it possible to have the freedom and leisure to go away for weekends to practice the Dharma. Things change. Conditions change. We have enormous freedoms. There are some places in the world that don't have those freedoms. And we're used to an incredible degree of sort of personal freedom in our own uh, societies in, in, in the modern West. It's not clear to me how long that is going to last for and how sustainable that is, you know, given the way we conduct ourselves in the world. It is not clear to me that this will last forever, and yet we think it will last forever. It will always be there. So it's good to knock it. It's good to kind of complain about it. Well, I wonder what it would be like if we didn't have a Padmaloka, or if we didn't have a Windhorse trading, or if we didn't have a centre, or if we didn't have our community, if we didn't have access to Buddhist literature. I wonder where we would be then, probably complaining about the people who you know, ran things because they must have got it wrong for it to be lost. Um, but the important point I want to make is no matter how good we have it, things change, things turn around. The old Tibet... The old Tibet, that fabulous Buddhist culture. I mean, it had its problems, but it was a fabulous Buddhist culture. Some Tibetans were deeply puzzled as to why the Chinese were able to be victorious. They could not believe why their magic 
rites, their tantric rites of, of, of obstruction and destruction did not keep the Chinese armies at bay. They could not believe that the Dharma could be destroyed in that way. Well, they hadn't studied their own scriptures. They hadn't studied deeply enough the fact that things change, conditions change, and you have to be tuned up to that. You have to respond to that if you want to keep you know, good things alive amongst you. So there's the suffering that comes through transformation. And then, even if, even if we kind of got into a situation where, where, where things were really good, you know, everything in our life is good, you know, our family is good, the people we live with is good, we've got plenty of money without much work, we've got good food, we can go on retreat when we like, everything is perfect there is still something that you, you, you have to deal with. And this is, called, this is called kunda or skanda or sankara, sanskara dukkha. This is the suffering of being a conditioned, contingent being. This is the suffering of not being a Buddha. This is the suffering of not being an enlightened being. There is according to Buddhist tradition, something in us that will always long for complete fulfilment, which can only be found in enlightenment, that can only be found in transcending, transcending the distinction between self and other, seeing through the fiction of a separate self, which is what nirvana is, the cessation of all craving and grasping, all aversion and hatred, all delusion, seeing through, breaking through that fiction. There is always something longing to transcend that sense of, that deep sense of separateness and all the kind of uh, stuff, sansaric stuff that arises from it. So there's always going to be that dukkha, dukkha, that, sorry, that uh, skanda dukkha, that suffering that comes from being a conditioned being. Padmasambhava, Guru Rinpoche, as he's known as in Tibetan Buddhism, the greatly precious Guru, is a response. He responds to all these levels of dukkha, of suffering. To all these levels of suffering. This is how he's seen within the Tibetan tradition. This is how he is viewed. His very birth, and of course it was an immaculate birth, he popped out of a lotus a fully grown eight-year-old boy. Um, you know, that's, that, that's the myth, that's the story. You don't have to believe these things as dogma. That's the beautiful thing about Buddhism. You don't have to believe it like you believe in the incarnation of Christ if you're a Roman Catholic. It's a myth, a story. It's telling you something about the nature of enlightenment, the nature of reality. But the story is that his very birth was the response of the Buddha Amitabha, the great red Buddha of the Western direction, the Buddha of infinite light and infinite love, he responded to his disciple, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, who saw the terrible sufferings in a region of northwest India, the terrible sufferings of famine that people were undergoing and the conflict coming from famine. Avalokiteshvara, this bodhisattva representing great compassion, entreated Amitabha to do something. He'd come to the end 
of what he could do. He'd come to the end of what he could do. So he had to look beyond that, look deeper, looked to the Buddha Amitabha. And the response was Amitabha sending a ray of light into the Dharmakosha Lake. And out of that came this eight-year-old boy child. And when he was asked what he was doing, he said, I am here because I am puzzled by suffering. I am here to heal the suffering of the world. Imagine an eight-year-old boy child speaking that wisdom. There's a very, very powerful image indeed. This fresh, pure awareness speaking this wisdom. I am here to deal with suffering. I am here to respond to suffering. I'm puzzled by suffering. I am wisdom. I am compassion. And I come to heal the suffering of the world. And sometimes it can be like that for us. I mentioned that feeling of helplessness when we're presented with the suffering of the world, when we're presented with our own suffering. Maybe that's how some of you have, have come to Buddhism. Maybe that's, that, that's what brought you here. You know, you kind of, you know, more se- a sensitive person, sensitive about yourself, sensitive about your world. And yet all the solutions that you're presented with, all the solutions, having a career, having fulfilment in that way, um, all the psychological solutions, political so- solutions, social solutions and all the rest of it, they don't speak to you. They are not an answer and you, you have to find a deeper solution. You have to kind of move sideways or move above or just something very, very different to find a different response to things. So maybe you've found that. Well, that's what happened with Avalokiteshvara, this great crisis in re- response to these people. And he called up, the response was this being, Padmasambhava, the lotus born to respond to the sufferings of the world. It sounds, I realise perhaps for some of you who are new to things, well this just sounds like superstition. You know, Tibetan Buddhists invoking a saint, a a deity to deal with their suffering. But of course, uh, it's not actually like that. Because these images, these images of Padmasambhava and the other images are not regarded as ultimately outside of you. In Tibetan Buddhism, if you go to a Tibetan Buddhist temple, if you go among the Tibetans in India, they do lots and lots of mantra chanting, lots and lots of puja. They make lots and lots of offerings. And you can begin to wonder, are they they really Buddhists? Because didn't the Buddha say, you know, you need to be self-reliant, be an island unto yourself, be a lamp unto yourself? You know, have, have, are they a kind of degeneration of Buddhism? Some, some people believe that, some people think that. But the deep Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the deep Buddhist tradition, is that, yes, you might do these invocations, these mantras, you might have all these stories and images, but deep down, your deepest nature is that these are ultimately you. These are energies inside yourself that you are invoking. So these images of Padmasambhava here, we have them, we worship them, but in the end they're to be realised inside ourselves. The image becomes us. If you look at that image, this is my particular favourite one, this image of Padmasambhava. And this particular form 
what's really going on here, what's out of picture, is a little demon. A little green demon. Tibetans are really into uh, demonology. They're really into their demons. But the little green demon is you and me. The little green demon is Amara, something that obstructs spiritual development, something that obstructs our harmonious human life. Padmasambhava is the tamer of these demons. He's the tamer of these demons in ourselves. And if you look at his face, if you look closely at his face, it's fierce. He looks very much like a magus, like a magician who can handle demons. He can call them up. He can look at them right in the eye. He can bring his vajra, his diamond thunderbolt to them so that they actually start to serve his spiritual practice, serve his spiritual life, serve the Dharma. And this is the great myth of Padmasambhava. If you like, suffering is presented very often as the work of demons. The sufferings of the world is presented as the work of these kind of powerful, deep forces that are both inside and outside the human psyche, which are obstructive of spiritual development, of human development, that need to be looked into, that need to be looked at. And the great myth here, the great story here, is the myth of the construction of the great temple at Samye. This is the great myth of, one of the great myths of Tibetan Buddhism. The story goes that the great Tibetan king Trisong Detson uh, wanted, or became, a Buddhist. So he invited great Indian pandits and scholars of his day to Tibet to teach the Dharma. And the great Bodhisattva Shantarakshita uh, came, very uh, gentle, uh, great wise man, came to teach the Dharma. And they decided that the best thing to do was to build a great monastery, to build a great temple, a place where people could come together to practice the Dharma together as a Sangha that would be a focus for all the aspirations of the Tibetan Buddhist people to live the Buddhist life as fully as possible, that would support monks and lay people to practice a place where the Dharma could be taught. So they dug the earth, they had all sorts of rituals, all sorts of blessings and invocations to create this great temple, this great monastery, this great place where the spiritual community could gather. So the workmen would work very hard in the day and then the next morning they'd go there and everything had been smashed. The walls were down, the foundations dug up. The next day they'd go and build the temple. They'd come back the next morning and it was smashed. This went on again and again. There was some force, there was some entity that was destroying the construction of the monastery. And of course it can be like that in our own personal spiritual lives as well as in our collective lives. We take up Buddhist practice, we take up a meditation practice, we decide it's good to meditate every day. So every morning we get up early and we do our meditation, we decide to do that. And then one night... One night, in the, it's somehow, in our sleep, something has gone on. 
that aspiration to meditate every day, that positive experience that we've gained in meditation has somehow been dismantled. And the next day when we wake up and the alarm goes off, oh no, it's, no I, I won't meditate today, I'll just have a lie in. I mean, I don't want to be too willful. Um, I've been very good with my meditation. Um, I'll just stay in, I'll stay in bed a bit longer. Um, yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. And the next day the same thing happens. Somehow or other, overnight, a deconstruction has gone on. So what were the forces that uh, destroyed Samye Monastery? Well, it said that they were the Liu. The, uh, that's the Tibetan name for these gods, these water demons called the Liu. In India, they're called the Nagas, the serpent demons. And that gives us a great clue as to what going on, what's going on. These deep forces that live in the rivers and streams and lakes and ponds of Tibet. These Liu, these Nagas, were obstructing the temple. They're also associated in Tibetan mythology with wealth they're the gods of 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 lumber of of uh, of timber they're the gods of treasure of gold and jewels and so on so there's this deep obstruction going on among the tibetans and in the same way there's deep obstructions within our own psyche shantarakshita told the king well there's only one thing to do i can't handle this i'm a bodhisattva i'm a wise and compassionate person, but I can't handle these forces and energies. There's only one person who can help you. There's this man, this yogi, named Padmasambhava. He's in India. He's got a reputation. He's got a very colourful reputation. He lives mainly in the burning grounds. And he's there with all the ghosts and ghouls of the burning grounds, all these monstrous darkenies, and flesh eaters that uh, destroy most men, he's there transforming them, turning them into dancing goddesses. And he dances with them in ecstasy. They serve the Dharma because of him. They become part of his spiritual practice. He's gone to different countries where people are hostile to Buddhism, different countries of India. He's gone to them and by incredible means... He's brought them to the Dharma. He is the man who has to come. So the great Guru Padmasambhava is invited. It takes a long time to find him. It takes a long time for him to come. Uh, he seems to spend a lot of his time before he enters Tibet on the borders of Tibet, deep in meditation, grappling with the gods of the soil, the gods of the mountains, uh, the different gods of the plains. So that when he goes, he can deal more effectively with the beings of Tibet. And there's all sorts of stories about his encounters with the Naga. There's an incredible moment in the text describing him where the king, who's been kind of tricked by the Nagas, Padmasambhava is converting them very, very well in his depths of meditation. But the king of the Nagas persuades him, look, for goodness sake, break the yogin's meditation. Stop him doing this meditation because... You know, and I'll give you everything you need. So the king, thinking he's got the deal, he's, he's done the deal with the Naga king, king goes in to talk to Padmasambhava. And what he sees is this huge eagle with snakes in his mouth. Padmasambhava's meditation converting the Nagas. And 
Padmasambhava, when he's disturbed in his meditation, rebukes the king Trisongdetsan and says, the work of conversion, the work of transformation is incomplete. You've broken it up. This means that there will be problems in the future for the Tibetan people. They kind of love all this prophecy, the Tibetans. So, so let, let's, let's look at this. this let, let's look at this. It's a fantastic story. And in a way, one just prefers the story. I mean, the story as it goes on, it is of the wonderful conversion of all these different deities and beings and people to the Dharma in Tibet. But we need to look at it in our context. Otherwise, it just remains a wonderful fairy story. Basically, what it means inside ourselves and collectively, it means going into the deep and powerful forces of our being and transforming them in the light of the Dharma. It's very, very simple. When you invoke the great Guru Padmasambhava, that's what you're invoking. You're invoking the transformative powers of the Dharma. When you chant his mantra, when you meditate on him, you're inviting him into your consciousness to transform every single part of you. Your deep energies are not to be left out in your spiritual practice. They are to be taken up and transformed into your spiritual practice. They have to be. Otherwise they will subvert. Otherwise they will take you apart. Otherwise they will destroy your spiritual practice. There are many, many ways, many descriptions of the ways that we can do this. We could spend, well, we can spend the rest of our spiritual life talking about this and doing this. But I want to mention the way which I think is one of the most effective and one of the most powerful ways to transform our, our emotions, our deep emotions, and to transform our world at the same time. It is the great tantric practice. It is the serious tantric practice, the great magical rite. They love these magical rites. You get these magical rites in the, in the tantra, the red rite of attraction, the way you attract beings to you so that you can teach them the Dharma. Sometimes it's used to get girlfriends and boyfriends, but if you do that, you're, going, you're, you know, you're really heading for trouble. You do it to attract people to the Dharma. There's the white rite of pacifying of calming people down because people get very stirred up through their spiritual practice. You get stirred up through your spiritual practice. So you need to learn the right of pacifying and, 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 and calming people down. Then there's the black right of destruction. The black right of destruction. You need to be able to destroy. Destroy? What do you destroy? You need to be able to destroy hatred and craving and greed and conceit, and egotism. They need to be dissolved. Not that you go and give people you know, a real ripping into. You have to do it in yourself, and you give people the means to do it. And then there's the right of prospering, the yellow right of enriching people with the positive experiences that you've gained. You enrich them with, 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 with knowledge and, and experience. You pass that on. These are the magic rites. But there's... One great magic rite which leads to these great rites. One great tantric rite. And it's called the Maitri Bhavana. The Metta Bhavana. The development of universal, boundless loving kindness. That is the great 
magic rite of Guru Padmasambhava. That is the main practice. If you want to transform the demons in your being, these brick walls that are between you and coming close to yourself and coming close to others, well, you need to do the Metabhavna. If you're going to make a difference in the world, you need to do the Metabhavna. The Metabhavna was originally taught by the Buddha not as a practice of personal transformation, although it does do that, but as a practice that touches the world around you. When you do the metta, you're actually affecting people, you're touching people. That's the way the Buddha taught it to his monks, because they were having trouble with demons, actually. Gods, gods of flowers, incidentally, and trees. Spirits, they were upset because they were being ignored by the monks who were so busy being mindful they were actually not in touch with their environment. So the Buddha taught them the Karaniya Metta Sutta, which Bhante talks about in Living with Kindness, taught them the Metta Bhavana. He says, you do this, the spirits will be happy. You do, you do love for them, as well as, incidentally, gaining enlightenment for, for, for all beings. So the Metta Bhavana is done for others. And Padmasambhava himself talks about the Metta Bhavana. So I'm going to give you a little teaching from Padmasambhava about the Metabhavna. Uh, a little commentary on a few words from the Metabhavna to give you Padmasambhava's vision of the Metabhavna, of loving kindness, so that you will take it up to transform these deep energies so that they flow into the Dharma. The great one of Odiyana, the great, the great one of Odiyana is Padmasambhava. Uh, Odiana, the Tibetan for Odiana is Urgyen. Urgyen. And some of you might know that Sangharakshita's full name is Urgyen Sangharakshita. And this was a name given to him by one of his Nyingma teachers uh, when he initiated in, him into the Padmasambhava Sadhana. So Urgyen Sangharakshita, it means Sangharakshita from Urgyen. It's indicating his special connection with Padmasambhava, with Guru Rinpoche. And that's why. Padmasambhava is so important to us. Incidentally, just so that, just for the sake of completeness, Padmaloka is the name, one of the names of Padmasambhava's pure land, the world of the lotus. And Sangharachita thought of the name, and just when he thought of it, somebody found and brought to him some pictures of Padmasambhava found on the premises. So 30 years ago, some pictures of Padmasambhava were found just when Sangharachita was thinking of calling um, Padmaloka, Padmaloka. And Sangharachita was commenting, hmm, well, the Tibetans would regard that as quite auspicious. <laughs> usual understatement. So the great one of Urgyen, Padmasambhava, describes love, metta, like this. Love that focuses on all sentient beings arises when the mind reflects... I know that all sentient beings are my parents. Therefore, may they all be filled with happiness. Love that focuses on truth arises when the mind reflects. Though nothing ultimately exists, beings do exist in a relative sense. They are merely an illusion, a dream, but in their relative existence they suffer. As all these beings are my mother... May they all be filled with happiness. Love without a focus arises when in the course of your meditation 
you see that all beings, both self and others, have the nature of openness, free from intellectualization, just like the sky. From that knowledge, love grows continuously, like a ceaseless melody. Love projects itself as open-ended, with no set nature, with no limited focus, and being non-conceptual in its being, it exhibits the threefold purity. Thus, love is transformed into compassion. So I'm going to say a few words about this teaching, and then I'll conclude. So first of all, love, metta, maitri, that focuses on all sentient beings, arises when the mind reflects, I know that all sentient beings are my parents, therefore may they all be filled with happiness. This sounds, I know, very strange. Perhaps it doesn't sound like a very powerful teaching. Perhaps it sounds very obscure to you. This is the, the, the particular Tibetan teaching. Tibetans, of course, have great faith in rebirth. For them, it's a fact. So you reflect in meditations that at some point, everybody's been your mother. Every single living being has been your mother. Your mother tended you, brought you into the world. So you're connected with every being. So, of course, you love every being. You make no distinctions between any being because your mother. Now, for us, this might be very difficult. Some people would suggest that the reason why this meditation was introduced was because a lot of young Tibetan boys were, you know, left home when very young and became monks. So it was a way of, positive way of getting them to think about their mother, um, of recalling their mother and feeling that they had, you know, think, would he think what he'd say. Metabhavna, first of all, what you need to start developing is the sameness of yourself and other people. You need to really tune into that. So, in the first stage of the Metabhavna, the human being, first stage of the Metabhavna, sort of pumping your thoughts with a big grin of, of, of abundance of appreciate human being. That's all you really do in the first stage. It's very, very simple. Sheer pleasure of breathing. I'm breathing. I could not be breathing. Well, that would be horrible. But I'm breathing. I'm, I'm seeing. I can see. I can see visual forms. I'm hearing. I can because I reflect on things. I have an imagination. I have feelings about things. Well, this is, this is a wonder in itself. This is a wonder in itself. This, this miracle of embodiment, of being alive and cherish that. We might also reflect, and not only that, I even have the Dharma. I, well, I take care of myself. I want to live. I want to avoid pain. I want pleasure. I need pleasure. And I want to avoid suffering. We reflect in this way. That's what you're doing in the first stage. So naturally, if you think like that, you're not positively may end that neutral person, that acquaintance, that enemy, that person you dislike, you're having difficulties with, they are the same in that regard. They are exactly the same as me. Whatever goes on, they want to be... But everybody like you. Everybody is a living being like you. And obviously, not just human beings, but all life whatsoever. This is the first stage of the practice. This is the first level of loving kindness. This deep sense of the sameness and an accent without distinction. So this is love that focuses on sentient beings. 
that sees sentient beings as sentient beings because we experience ourselves as sentient beings. Well, if we could achieve that, there would be a very, very deep transformation. A very, very deep transformation. All sorts of energies can begin to flow uh, into that. But then love goes even further. The great, Odiyana, the great one of Odiyana, Padmasambhava, says, you then have to develop the love that focuses on truth, which comes when you reflect that all these beings are changing beings. You start to see, well, you know, we usually have this view that uh, myself and other people, we are what we are. We are always the same. We're, we're fixed entities. And we often get into, you know, we know we get into, well, this is where the demons start to really get going, don't we? You know, he is like that and he will never change, so I will never talk to him. I'll never talk to him again because he can't change. He is like that. Or even worse, on the sort of, well, that's bad enough, but on the social level, that group, that nation, those Muslims, those Jews, those Christians, those Buddhists, those Hindus, you know, that lot, you know, those immigrants, all that kind of thing. We just fix people. We're not seeing them at all. We start to see that all beings are changing beings. They're flowing beings. If we look at ourselves, if we, we, we see how we change from day to day, there's all sorts of moods and sensations, all sorts of physical changes going on. So we need to tune up to that. We also need to tune up to the fact that we will come to an end. We will die in the end. Padmasambhava holds the skull cup. The skull cup, Well, it's often explained as well the skull cut indicates the voidness the empty nature of things but it's death isn't it it's impermanence he's holding it up right in front of his heart there and there on his lap so that he constantly meditates on impermanence death emptiness of all things you love the changing being you let your love flow towards the ever-changingness of others you start tuning into the fact they change just on the physical level. There were black hairs yesterday. There are grey hairs today, many grey hairs today. There was a nice smooth skin yesterday, lots of wrinkles today. So you reflect on that, you start tuning in to that deeper level of truth. You start to see them as, as you know, more, 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 more accurately, more deeply, and your love becomes more finely tuned. Your love becomes more effective. When you know your own impermanence, when you know the impermanence of others, your love is much more powerful, much more precise. It's much more tuned in. In fact, if you actually see the changing nature of things, if you see the impermanence of things, that will naturally evoke love. You couldn't not but teach, treat people in, in, in the best way. The famous, the wonderful Vajra, Quote from the Buddha in the Dhammapada. Those who know that we are all headed for death will compose their quarrels. Those who know that, that we are all he heading for death will not quarrel anymore with other people, with existence, with life. There will just be friendliness and love for all that lives because life is too short. 
and too precarious and too elusive to waste on petty quarrelling, to waste on the demonic of hatred and all the rest of it. Far too precious and elusive and wonderful to squander on, on those things. But it goes even deeper than that. Guru Rinpoche Padmasambhava speaks of love without a focus that arises when you see that all beings are of the nature of openness. This is this particular translation of, of the word shunyata. You often translate it as emptiness or voidness. Openness, though, is so expressive, isn't it? Actually, in reality, there is, there is no closing. We can often feel, because we, we do feel, because we have separate bodies, we're closed off, we're walled in from other people. But Guru Rinpoche, when he speaks of loving-kindness, when he enacts loving-kindness, it flows because he sees that there is no separation. There is no ultimate difference between self and other. When that happens, of course, it's not you doing the loving. It's not you doing the loving. It's love and you're not doing the loving to anybody. Mysteriously, they're there, you're there, but you're not there, and they're not there. There is this outpouring of loving kindness, as he puts it beautifully. It love grows continuously, like a ceaseless melody, just pouring out. All the energy from the depths of your being is just flowing into this ceaseless melody of loving kindness, just flowing out, pervading the world. And he says that, when, when, when this love, the, the translator, this love projects itself as open-ended, but I'm sure it's not like that. This love radiates itself uh, as open-ended. It radiates as open-ended. It has no set nature. It can be anything. It can be anything. Padmasambhava has eight principal forms, 12 major forms, 100,000... Uh, expressions. When you, when you get into Tibetan Buddhism, if you look at the literature on Guru Rinpoche, you start realising that this being, Padmasambhava, this force of energy, can be anything and is anything. And in one of the texts it says, I have 108 names that change at will. And the names are extraordinarily expressive. Just, and they're really, they're about this no set nature of loving kindness that can respond in whatever way is required, according to circumstance. And this is why sometimes it's said that Padmasambhava is extraordinarily unpredictable. If you invoke Padmasambhava, you think, oh yes, we invoke Padmasambhava, we transform our energies, this is great, we're going to feel ecstatic. Hold up, people. Anything could happen. Anything could happen in this space. You don't know what's going to kick in. You might really surprise yourself. And surprise other people when you invoke Guru Rinpoche. Because you're invoking uh, this love that has no set nature. And one of my very favourite forms of Guru Rinpoche. Particularly embodies this. He said, this is a, a rather modern kind of hip uh, description of this figure. He said to embody the crazy wisdom aspect of Guru Rinpoche, of Padmasambhava. Uh, one Tibetan Lama says, there's nothing crazy about this wisdom. This is complete sanity. This is, 
the wisdom that's tuned up, the love that's tuned up to the way things are. And this particular figure manifested particularly in the last period of when he was in uh, Tibet. And he's very much associated with the hiding of the treasures of the Dharma. And he's invoked to rediscover these treasures of the Dharma. And he's associated in particular with the transformation of chaotic, demonic energy. He embodies this great love which has no set nature that goes into any situation and transforms it into creativity. So I'm sure you all want to know what this particular, who this particular figure is. His name is Dorje Drolo, which means adamantine sagging belly. Adamantine sagging belly. He's got a lovely, relaxed, sagging belly. No tension. No tension. Really relaxed from all his you know, deep breathing uh, practices, deep yogic practices. All the deep energies are transformed into this lovely, relaxed, wise, sagging belly. And he's deep maroon in colour. Deep maroon. It's sort of crimson black colour. This is love. This is the real powerful Maitri that has no set nature. His whole body is this deep maroon. He's biting his lower lip. He's that wrathful. He's biting his lower lip. He has three huge bulging eyes. His eyebrows are so made of sheets of flame. He has orange matted dreads. Fantastic dreadlocks. Best dreadlocks, you know, because he's been in the burning grounds, meditating like a yogi, doesn't care what he looks at. So these fantastic heavy dreads uh, are, are pouring down the side of his face. He's wearing the blue robes of a tantric practitioner. Blue for shunyata, voidness, mystery. Blue for the hidden secret paths that transform the deep esoteric hidden energies of our nature and of the nature of all things. But he has a patched red and yellow robe of a monk. And it's just kind of holding on because he's, he's moving. His kind of left hand is down there. His right hand is up here. He's standing in this incredible champion's posture, as, it, as it's called, like a great hero, kind of dancing. But there's so much energy. This red and yellow patch robe is kind of coming off, but it's there. So this is very important because this indicates form, structure. It does need to be there. Padmasambhava has no set nature. But that doesn't mean he's defined by no set nature. He can also use set nature to bring people to the Dharma. He can be completely anarchic. But he can also be incredibly formal. So this is a very, very important teaching, uh, teaching in that. But I'll say no more about that because time's going on. His left hand is holding a dagger, a black dagger or a deep blue dagger, which pins the demon through naming the demon. It's very important to name those things that obstruct us. You've got this brick wall here where you're going to pin down the things that obstruct you, that keep you between, between yourself and the way things are. You're going to pin it down on this, on this wall. You're going to name it. You're going to say what it is. And he holds the Vajra of compassion, the Vajra of transformation in his right hand. He's wearing a necklace of freshly severed human heads. Again, 
the conquering of demonic energies, conch shell earrings. He's got a mirror on his breastbone and he's riding something. He's not standing on a lotus. He's not, that's, that's not his support. It's nothing other than a pregnant tigress. A roaring pregnant tigresses. And apparently pregnant tigresses are extraordinarily dangerous and unpredictable. Well, you know what it's like, you know, if you know, a, a woman is pregnant, you know, that is pretty unpredictable. Well, imagine a pregnant tigress. Imagine how unpredictable and sensitive she's going to be. You could very easily be eaten. You could be very easily mauled and given a hard time. Somehow, Guru Rinpoche is riding the tigress. He's riding the energies. He's riding the chaos of existence. The tigress is walking on a sea of red swirling nectar. And this is said to be the great bliss. The nectar is the great bliss. That, and the sea, of course, is in the midst of a vast expanse of clear blue sky, which is the emptiness of all things. So Guru Rinpoche rides the chaotic energies, transforms the chaotic energies with great ecstasy and bliss. I said he's a wrathful figure. That could be misunderstood. It doesn't mean that you go around being angry and that's the way you're going to transform yourself and your world. Really this wrath, this anger, what it really represents is intense spiritual creativity, intense loving kindness, pouring out of wisdom that can face yourself, face your world and transform it into something extraordinary and wonderful and find the deep treasures of the Dharma, the deep treasures of reality. Enough.